Hello there and welcome to another Pyro Seminar. Now, I recorded this live and there were a few issues with the sound. I haven't quite worked out why yet, I'm going to figure that out later today, but a couple of points I dropped out. So I'm re-recording those two bits, one of them was at the beginning and one was in the middle. Apart from that, the sound quality was okay. Uh, there's just some annoying little um, distortions here and there, but hopefully that won't bother you too much. Okay, so the theme for this seminar is really ideology and its critique. And I want to look at how ideology and the critique of ideology are interconnected and how the critique of ideology is still in itself ideological. Um, so I should start by defining what ideology is. And there's actually a very good video by Todd McGowan on his YouTube channel, uh, which kind of covers how the notion of ideology critique develops and changes over the last couple of hundred years. But I will offer you at the beginning the simplest definition, uh, the one that anybody will give you if they know a little bit about what the word ideology is. Uh, and so that basic definition which really starts with Marx, is the idea that ideology is any system of thought that takes a particular moment in time and freezes it as the universal. So what that means is at a particular uh, religious or cultural or political uh, position is risen to the level of an ahistorical reality that is the way things ought to be that whether it's because God wants that to be or whether it coheres with nature or more specifically with human nature. So for example, um, in terms of say our current economic system, you would say that the way that we relate to each other socially, the way we create products, the way we distribute products, isn't just some sort of historical moment, but rather is the way that we should do things, that it coheres with something that is essential to human nature. It isn't just a contingent material uh, happening that arose gradually because of a certain set of circumstances. It is the way things ought to be. Um, and within you know, capitalism, the idea is that we are economic creatures. And by economic creatures, that means creatures that calculate self-interest. We are utilitarian in nature. And because we are utilitarian in nature, and because, so the ideology goes, uh, human capitalism is utilitarian in nature, the free market, therefore it is the end of history. It is the final economic form. Right, so that's kind of what ideology does. <clears throat> so what you will find always in kind of like ideological structures is a universalization of a particular, right? The universalization of a particular people, a particular ideology, a particular whatever, but it's hidden as it's hidden in the guise of a universal, right? So it's particularistic, but it's hidden in the guise of this is everything. Say, for example, confessional Christianity that might say, uh, right, so Christianity is a universalist religion. Um, and by that, there's, you know, there's conservative universalism, which is Christianity is for everybody. Right, so you go to the ends of the earth. The message is for everyone, so it's a universal religion. There are particularistic religions that in which the message is not for everybody. Right, but Christianity, traditionally in its confessional conservative form, is a universalist religion. Um, then you also have progressive forms of Christianity, where the universalism is 
that the, the effect of the message is for everyone. So it's not just that the message is for everyone, um, and if you don't respond to it, you're kind of quite literally a, a, a no one. Right? You go to hell, right? You're excluded from being itself. Um, in progressivism, universal message, it's a uni it's, everyone gets it. Everyone is affected by it. Um, there's a third type of universal I'm going to talk about at the end of this talk, but I'll leave that. <clears throat> but, um, <clears throat> you, so under the guise of a particularistic religion, a particular religion that grew up at a particular time, with a particular set of circumstances, is universalized and is understood to be universal, right? Um, you see this as well with popular conservative commentators like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or Tim Poole or, or any of these types of people. You will hear that they advocate for universalism. So say, for example, meritocracy. Right? Peterson's quite big on meritocracy, uh, which is the idea, a universal idea. Like We live in a society. Now, not perfectly. No one's going to say it's perfect in the conservative ideological field, but they might say, well, broadly speaking, we live in a meritocracy. Uh, we have to get rid of bad actors. We have to get rid of criminals. We have to like. There's always things that are working against the meritocracy. But by and large, we are kind of engaged in a system that is the most meritocratic that we have seen, and that we are uh, endeavouring to make more uh, meritocratic, right? Um, and the idea is you work hard, you'll do well. You know, you, 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 and you see us on Instagram all the time, all these people here telling you all the tips to business success and how to make money as an entrepreneur and all of this kind of stuff with the kind of underlying message that like, you work hard, you do it, you have your discipline, you follow these steps and you won't always make it, but hey, there's a good chance, right? There's other systems in the past where no matter how much you tried, you would never make it, but we live broadly speaking, in this meritocracy. Now, that's a universalism. Meritocracy is kind of universal. We're all covered by it. Um, but there is something that doesn't sound quite right. And this is where uh, critical theory comes in, social criticism, the criticism of ideology. So uh, the criticism of ideology is what particularizes the universal. Right, so if the if the if ideology and let's say conservative ideology um, universalizes a particular, then the criticism of that particularizes the universal, which means it shows how that universal actually works in the favor of one group uh, over another. Right, so meritocracy might be critiqued because it's okay, it looks like it's a meritocracy, but when you look more closely, people who are uneducated. Uh, uh, who don't have access to education do not do as well as people who have access to education or you say people who have money that money generally stays in that group and that money doesn't generally get dispersed among other people whatever so it go like there is under the guise of human rights there is a hidden uh, group that benefits more than other groups right um, so that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, what you find within critical theory. By the way, little known fact, I have a master's in critical theory, <laughs> um, which I did a long time ago. Uh, I'm not a critical theorist, but I did have a master's in it. So, and, and the work of critical theory in its traditional form is particularizing the universal, showing how there are plays of particular groups in society, trying to out each other, trying to... Uh, 
you know, what, where, where one group has more power and is able to make their narrative seem like universal, seem as if it is somehow atemporal, ahistorical, the way things should be and the way nature or God wants it to be. Um, okay, so you've got the universalizing of a particular, and you've got the particularizing of a universal. Um, now, what you'll begin to perceive here, and what I say is a problem, is the conservative ideology is identitarian. So identitarian means there is a certain identity group that um, benefits, and, and the society is broken into identity groups, right? And then there's, there's one group that's hidden under the guise of universality. And then the liberal critique is identity, what can be called identity politics. So if the one is identitarianism, the other is identity politics, which is a kind of like a, a celebration of different identities. So one is kind of the, a hidden identity under the guise of a universal, and the other is the celebration of particular identities and the intersection of these different uh, uh, identity groups and the ways that we actually ourselves are intersections of different identities. Right? Um, okay, uh, where do we go from there? Right, well, so what, what these are both caught up in, I would say, is ideology. Even the criticism of ideology is therefore ideological. And this is where I want to kind of make the definition of ideology a little bit more subtle. So at the beginning, I was saying that ideology is the way in which um, someone justifies the present order as the way things should be. So in the famous hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, there's a, there's a, a verse that's been taken out, but the verse says, A rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Okay, so that's ideology. Right? That, the, the hymn is saying, if you're the rich man in his castle or you're the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered that estate, right? Ordered it in that way. That's ideology. So before I move on to the third position, the idea of criticism of criticism, I want to talk briefly about how ideology and the critique of ideology are caught up in the same kind of problem. So in terms of the first, uh, the first position is identitarian. Now generally, it is crypto-identitarian, right? So by particularizing a universal, by putting a particular group in the, uh, in the dress of universalism, it hides its identitarianism. But sometimes the extreme forms of conservative ideology are explicitly identitarian. So less so now, but of course there are people who say that, you know, the Europeans or uh, whatever are the kind of stand in for the universal. But then crypto-identitarianism is that that is hidden in concepts like meritocracy, uh, where it's said that, oh no, everyone has equal access to success, um, you know, broadly speaking. In contrast, the particularizing of the universal, which you find in kind of liberal critiques, uh, is identity politics. It, it embraces the various identity groups and doesn't see one as superior to another. What there is is a play 
of identities and groups, an intersection of different identities, including ourselves. We ourselves are intersectional, like we intersect with various identity groups. And so what you have then kind of is a type of Foucaultian uh, postmodern uh, kind of relativization in which we have various groups who have different narratives and different experiences of the world competing within that world. And what we want is to have some way of those different groups intersecting and having equal access to the, uh, the institutions um, and the free market, etc. Now, what I want to do now is look at how conservative ideology and its critique are interconnected and how the critique of conservative ideology is in and of itself still ideological in nature. Now to understand that I have to kind of add a little bit more to the definition of ideology. Ideology doesn't just uh, take a freeze frame and try to make a particular point in history seem as if it's universal. Ideology makes contingent violence, antagonism within the system. It either makes it contingent or it tries to cover it up entirely. Right? So what I mean by that is any problems within the system, with any antagonisms within the contemporary structure that blew up in terms of homelessness or crime or rioting, are seen as cancers that can be cut out of the body, uh, that they can be dealt with in some way so that the system can continue to run. They are contingent, not necessary. Now what you find is within conservative ideology, there is a justification of what in anthropology would be called concentric models. A concentric model is a model where the powerful are in the middle and the less powerful are on the outside. So it's a hierarchical structure. And within the criticism of conservative ideology, you have the notion of what's called in anthropology dual organizations, which are a type of yin and yang, but you have various different groups within society that have different rules, responsibilities, experiences of life, but can come together like a jigsaw puzzle and you know fit together. And so the violence and the problems within society can be gotten rid of by getting rid of bad actors, bad CEOs, bad institutional practices, uh, bad historical legacies, etc. This means that they're both caught up in the scapegoat mechanism. So the scapegoat mechanism is where you have to find someone to blame for the problems that you see in society. You have to find some group or individual who is the problem. Uh, and if we got rid of them, then everything would run again. So you find a scapegoat mechanism both in the conservative ideology and in the critique of ideology where some individual group, political party, has to be seen to be blamed for what's happening. Okay, so now I want to go to a third position which is called the criticism of criticism. So you've got ideology, it's criticism, and then the criticism of criticism. So what is the criticism of criticism? Um, it is where if the first position, right, is the uh, offering a positive universal, right, a, po a particular positive universal, right, and the second move is negating the universal, the third position is universalizing the negative. So, so criticism of criticism is, is the process in which 
you universalize the negative itself, which means you say that the violence and the antagonisms generated within a given society or a given individual um, are not some contingent thing like a cancer that you can cut out, but are a symptom of the structure itself. And you can only get rid of the negativity if you get rid of the system, right? There's, and I've talked about this before, but uh, using a Lacanian language, there's symptoms. A symptom is the coagulation of a contradiction. So there's a contradiction within society or within you. You love someone and you hate them. You want to speak, you want to stay silent. Um, in society, contradictions within the social body that erupt, right? So the symptom is what coagulates around it. Um, the example I always use for some reason, but is people grinding their teeth, <laughs> which sometimes can be a symptom of wanting to speak and wanting to stay silent. And so the grinding of the teeth is the symptom that coagulates these two things. And the symptom gives a certain amount of pleasure, by the way, to a person. It's a pleasure, but even if it causes suffering, it's kind of pleasurable because it kind of provides a way to navigate this contradiction within you. And getting rid of the symptom is often terrible, right? One of the things you do, people do in psychoanalysis, an analyst has to be very careful not to take the symptom away too, too early. It has to be worked through, worked through, worked through. Um, because if you take away the symptom, it can create absolute devastation in the person, right? This is called a negative therapeutic reaction. And an example would be, say someone's a workaholic and it's damaging their health, is damaging their relationships, and it's a symptom. It's a symptom of something, this, this frenetic pursuit of working so hard beyond. They've made all the money they need. They've, they've got everything materially they could ever want, but they're doing this, and it's damaging everything around them. And then let's imagine they you know, eventually listen to their partner and their kids and who are saying, you have got to retire. This is killing you, right? And then the person does it, so the person actually retires. Um, but they haven't worked through what the symptom means, they haven't worked through it, they'll probably die within six months or a year. They'll probably be hit, they could hit a very profound depression in that, in that retirement. Because the symptom, even though it was causing them suffering, was causing them pleasure. It was a compromise formation that was giving them a certain amount of pleasure in the suffering. But because they didn't work through it and understand what the symptom was, they just wanted to get rid of it. They're, eventually they just got rid of the symptom it caused a disaster. This is why I'm always nervous about people kind of using cognitive therapies, for example, to get rid of symptoms. Because that can actually lead to, to say, really, really profound negative therapeutic reactions. Uh, in analysis, you work through the symptom, you, you listen to it, and you hear what it says, right? So you've got symptoms. Now, you can get rid of symptoms through this process. Um, uh, you know, the, the process, what's called transference, is where uh, you go to an analyst, you start to treat them like a parent, where, you know, you're on the couch, you don't see their face, you're just imagining, you're looking at the ceiling, you're talking. Without knowing it, the analyst stops being a person and becomes this big other, this, this other in your life, right? And becomes the kind of, this, it becomes, um, you're relating not to them as an individual, but you're kind of relating to your parents and your siblings and your friends in that transferential relationship. And as you're doing that, and as you're working through the symptom, um, at the right time, as you work it through, you can resolve it. But 
there is, Lacan talks about this thing called the santom. It's an old spelling of symptom, santom. And the santom is a symptom that you can't unknot without unknotting yourself, right? It's kind of like a symptom that is, that is so core to who you are that if you got rid of it, you get rid of yourself. I, I remember watching a, an old Star Trek and James T. Kirk, isn't it Kirk? Uh, there was some alien force that could take away your trauma. And I, this has been 30 years since I've seen this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but this alien force could take away your trauma. And I think everybody in the enterprise were getting their traumas taken away. And Kirk refuses and says, listen, the, this trauma that I have is who I am. This is what's made me who I am. And that's kind of the santom that he's talking about. Okay? That at some deep level, there's some trauma that is in Kirk that he knows that if he got rid of it, he would get rid of himself. Um, now, the most basic symptom that we are is the ego. So Lacan says in seminar one, he says that the ego is a symptom, which means the ego is a compromised formation uh, of these forces that are within us. Uh, uh, so that which is interesting that's what I think happens on DMT and stuff well one of my theories of it is that what it does is it unknots the symptom of the ego and that's why you completely lose yourself right um, but you don't necessarily want to do that it's, it's the symptom that if you get rid of you get rid of this yourself uh, but it's the same with any system like the, the current system there's there's various symptoms you can get rid of and the system continues to run but Every system has an antagonism that if you got rid of the antagonism, you'd get rid of the system itself. So for, for Marx, just give you an example of his, of his capitalism, is he would say that, and this is called um, an imminent critique, because it's a critique from within, imagine capitalism runs perfectly. He would say something to the effect that in the free market, everything gets its value. Right, in a free market where there's no criminality and there's no, nobody's forced to buy and sell, but where we freely trade, in that market, everything will get its value because we're all able to freely trade. We don't have to buy, we don't have to sell, we're not compelled, there's no criminals. So everything gets its value. So what's the santom? Oh, so the symptoms are problems with that, like bad actors, bad CEOs, people who are doing criminal stuff, right? Those are symptoms maybe you can get rid of. Um, or problems that arise as the free market is getting on its feet. But Marx would say there is something about, in the, there's one thing in the free market that never gets its value when it works properly, that will just never get its value, and that's labor. Labor never gets its value because it's always underpaid, right? <laughs> I buy your labor or I rent your labor because, because I can make surplus value from your labor, right? So uh, there's an inherent antagonism. You can't get rid of surplus value without getting rid of capitalism, right? You can get rid of the other, but if, but if you get rid of surplus value, you don't no longer have capitalism. Now, by the way, I don't think, I think surplus value is, is the, uh, Todd McGowan says this, I completely agree with him. That's the most insightful thing about capitalism is I don't think the problem is surplus value. The problem is, um, uh, the lack of distribution of it. Some people sacrifice, create the surplus value that's enjoyed by others. And how do we how do we find a system in which the um, the spoils of that surplus value benefit more people, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But we're not getting into that. This is not. Um, this is just, that was just an example of like of how Marx would see the kind of central santom or antagonism of capitalism. It is the thing you cannot get rid of without getting rid of the system itself. Now Hegel argues. 
that every system eventually basically generates its own negation, right? So if you imagine, and like religion does this, uh, Phyllis Tickle, a woman some of you will have known, she's a great woman, uh, she would argue that every 500 years the church went through kind of a fundamental reformation. And what she was kind of articulating was that a system grows, it solves the problems, many of the problems of the past system, but eventually it generates its own questions and its own problems, many of which can be addressed within the system. But eventually the system creates problems that it cannot solve on its own terms. And a reformation is the movement from one uh, position to a qualitatively different one, right? This move, which in Hegel is the move from, from being to life, life to consciousness, consciousness to self-consciousness, self-consciousness to reason, right? And each of those moves, he thinks that there's a problem that arises within life, this antagonism, this negation, and that negation eventually erupts into consciousness. And there's a, there's a negation, a contradiction within consciousness itself that eventually erupts into self-consciousness. And Phyllis Tickle's arguing that this happens within, within the church. Every around 500 years you see it happening. So when I talk about the criticism of criticism as the universalizing of the negative, what this says is the problem with ideology and its supposed critique is that they both scapegoat, they both, they both render contingent ne negativity or try to cover it over entirely, blaming someone for it or saying it's not really a big issue, when actually negativity is what generates every society and movement and individual it's there and what we have to do is face it look at it now it always takes a different shape depending on the society or the person so the shape of negativity is different just like when you build a building architects shape nothingness right the way that they put up walls they create a space they they mold emptiness and it can feel oppressive, it can feel open, it can feel warm and welcoming, it can feel very kind of cool, whatever, right? You can mold the nothing depending on the walls. So every society has a different kind of like manifestation of negation, but it's, it's there. The first person to probably systematically reflect on this was Schopenhauer. Um, not the first, I mean, Hegel before him, but Schopenhauer's will to life is a brilliant reflection where Schopenhauer says, um, and argues that we have access to the essence of reality because we are part of reality. And if we internally reflect on ourselves, we discover discontent. <laughs> we discover desire. Desire. And desire is basically a kind of restlessness, right? And Schopenhauer says this restlessness is in everything, it's not just in us. It's in reality itself, restlessness, and he calls it the will. Will exists in everything. And uh, that's why he argues that you can never find satisfaction because satisfaction is a type of fantasy generated by the reality, the essence, which is this dissatisfaction itself. Dissatisfaction always finds a way to erupt within us. You can't get rid of it. Um, now, Schopenhauer had his own solutions to that, but that was you know, theorizing this, this, this kind of underground, like oceanic disturbance that's within us, this kind of volcanic 
disturbance. Uh, okay, so, but I, I think, by the way, that might be a way of understanding something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Is it Maslow? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I can't remember what they are now, but uh, basically he starts with some basic biological needs. And as those are, well, for him, it's as they are satisfied, you kind of go higher up in these needs. Hegel would probably turn it on its head and not talk about it as solving, but he'd say that, that you go deeper. So there's say a negation of you're hungry, you just don't have enough to eat. There's a negation there, there's, there's starvation, there's, there, like, which is a very powerful negation, a lack of food, and you can't think about anything else. As, as that negation, if that, if that doesn't kill you, you find a way to uh, feed yourself, you find a way to kind of like address that. But then that brings you to a deeper negation. And I don't know what the next one is in his hierarchy of needs, but basically what happens in every time you are able to kind of resolve a negation, you, you come to a deeper one until you come to a form of philosophical contemplation or spiritual contemplation where you contemplate nothingness itself. You're able to contemplate the kind of the nature of the contingency of life, et cetera, et cetera, right? But you can't really get to that until you've kind of got some other basic uh, contradictions dealt with. But it's not being solved. The contradiction is kind of just going deeper and deeper. Again, an example that um, Todd McGowan used, I thought was very good in his uh, Why Theory podcast. He just referenced it. Well, you know, if you, say, if you don't have a good life, like if you're, not, if you're working in a job you hate and you know, you're, you've got a life you don't like, death, is not necessarily something to be feared. You kind of kind of want to die. Um, but he said whenever, like, he says sometimes whenever he's watching a good movie, he kind of worries that he'll die before he sees the end of the movie, right? So that becomes a worry. This is a really good movie. Oh, no, what if I... Or there's maybe a movie that he hasn't seen, and he's going, what if I die before I see it, right? Um, that's a kind of higher negation in the sense is like now you're you're worried about dying <laughs> so it's not that the negation is dealt with it gets higher and higher until and maybe more um uh, tragically you get to a point where you have to confront the negativity itself that generates everything that there is no way to overcome negativity which is basically what ideology promises in its critical form and its and its traditional conservative ideological form, always promising a way to get rid of negativity and negation. You see this in New Age stuff, you see it in psychedelic enlightenment, sexual liberation, commodity satisfaction. You, it's everywhere, right? But when you universalize the negative, it means you stand in front of that storm, right? You feel that sublime, terrifying, awe-inspiring, yet terror-inducing experience. And this, I'll, I'll, now I'll come to the end. <laughs> um, right. Politically speaking, the, the true political act is universalizing the negative, drawing out the negation, showing it, letting it become visible to the people within the society in its unbearable form that's hidden, not scapegoating, saying, oh, it's because of that person's problem, but saying, we're all part of this. For example, say homelessness in LA is terrible. Um, what somebody might think is, what solutions can we get? Uh, one of the solutions they do in LA is they keep all of the homeless people in a small, tight area where they don't hassle them 
if they stay within these streets. But there's an invisible line. As soon as they cross the invisible line, the police will start to hassle them. They'll get in trouble. They'll get arrested. So you basically control the homeless by keeping them in this very small place, but also then giving out blankets and food and medical care and whatever. Um, but that's a way of kind of like thinking of homelessness as a type of cancer within society that can either be managed or gotten rid of through enough throwing enough money at it. But if you see homelessness as a Santom, in a sense, as the as uh, a manifestation of a problem within our structure, not a blip on the structure, a pimple on the structure we can get rid of, but actually a manifestation of a contradiction within the system, then homelessness is a uh, is not a problem to be solved. Societally speaking, it is the solution to a problem, just as the symptom is a solution to a problem of negation. Homelessness is a solution to an antagonism within our society. In the same way in America, the huge number of people who are in prison um, is not a problem, it's the solution to a problem that is within the system. And once you're able to show what that problem is that this is a solution to and you keep that in the, on the surface in the political structures you see it eventually that can become the fuel that that gradually moves society into a different form right so the political act is is, is showing the negativity showing the central negativity and how we're all in it it's not just because of that person out there which we always love we love projection right the 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 basic thing of René Girard is you know, Christianity is very con closely connected with the beginning of projection that you see then in psychoanalysis. But the first projection was an innocent man, God, right? We put our own lack, our own negativity onto them, and then we discover, oh, the scapegoat is innocent. Oh, then we realize that that lack is within us, and then we are transformed. In the same way, Use the example of like people laughing at people online, you know, say who are complaining. It's like the Karen phenomenon because we project our own frustrations with society out onto them. That person might be a terrible person. They might be it's having a bad day. We may not have seen what happened just before the video. They might be struggling with mental health issues. We don't know, but 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 they become a way for us to externalize our own. Um, you know, uh, experiences of frustration within society, put it onto them and say they're guilty, they're the ones, put them in prison, ridicule them, let them lose their jobs. But then the kind of Christological moment is you go, oh no, that's a reflection of me. There's something, there's something, of the, the, the excessive enjoyment I'm getting from laughing at and ridiculing that person is saying something about an, a repressed part of myself. And as you see that, and as you see these people as canaries in the mine, basically, um, uh, we're like, oh, we're all part of a structure that creates this level of, of anxiety and this level of sometimes psychotic anxiety. Uh, oh, yeah, well, and, and I participate in that society. Right? Now, what does that mean religiously? Because that, yeah, it's hard to imagine a society in the near future where we're able to embrace the negativity, let it do its work, because that will free us. Because when you're trying to always get rid of the negativity, you're always thinking, if I have enough money, then I'll be happy. If we get rid of this person, then I'll be happy. There's always something to get rid of it. If you're able to go, you know, there's no product that will make me happy, right? 
there's, there's like, there might be better and worse products and things that I want and have value, but none of them are going to like give me everything. When you really know that in your body, you're freed from this libidinal enthrallment to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. You'll still buy stuff. You'll still be in the world, but no longer of it. You'll be freed from that libidinal investment. What parotheology is, is the idea that we need a place called the church where we fully tarry with the negativity that is, in the set, that is part of reality itself, right? And so you have a group that meet together. I'm going to call it a communion, right? A community is a group that is gathered around a shared uh, denial of, of the necessity of negation, right? That's what a community is. Community, you gather around a shared enemy, a shared set of beliefs, a shared problem to solve. A communion is a group of people gathered together around a shared loss, a shared negation, and they embrace that negation. The name for it religiously is Eucharist, the death of God, right? A meal that is had around a loss, not just a loss, but a loss that is at the heart of everything, a heart that the absolute itself has negation and it has death within it. So, and this is maybe my naiveness, but I don't know, is that we can have salvation today, not just in the future politically and socially. We can experience freedom from conservative ideology and its criticism through this embrace of negativity. But what we do is we need to have a community where we gather together on a regular basis with art, music, literature, spoken word, that helps us enact ritualistically, in practice, enact this embrace of the, the loss. And that then can lead to resurrection, that leads to um, an experience of a depth of life. I'll say one more thing about that is, that's why it's interesting. You know, if you look at why Shizek and someone like that says, new atheism is not atheistic enough. What does that mean? Well, and, and why is Shizek I call himself an atheist. Well, in new atheism, you could say that you stop believing that there is some substantive wholeness to the universe, but then you find ersatz gods, right? So if you know people who have given up, say, Christianity, but then go into something like commodity satisfaction, psychedelic enlightenment, sexual liberation, whatever it is, right? the LA is full of it, you know, whether the solution is polyamory or psychedelics or, or as I say, being rich or famous, right? There's all of these solutions. Um, or whether it's a, you know, taking up a, a political cause and hating on some group um, or, or, or say, hating on some religion or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, as the problem and we get rid of that and society would work. Uh, what she's sees in this notion of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is not an intellectual atheism, right? Jesus likely believed in God, is talking to God, but an existential atheism which means in the heart of your being, you experience a loss. You experience that loss. That is what parotheology and its transformance art aspect is attempting to do, is to help you experience existentially that negativity at the core of everything. And in doing so, uh, there is a, a political, social, cultural dimension to that. Okay, so I've kind of waffled on for a while. I'm going to now look to see if you have any questions. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, there's lots of, lots of people chatting. Um, 
Everyone's cyber snooping Pete's apartment, yes. Not for long, I'm moving out in November. I've really loved living here, I have to say. Uh, when I moved in, the, the building was empty, so they gave me really good deals. Um, now the deals aren't so good. And uh, Oh no, the audio's out. Oh no. Okay, so the audio is gone. I've just um, noticed that, so I'm going to upload this and you'll be able to hear it. And there's no questions. Thank you for listening and I will <laughs> talk to you very soon.